Paul Laurie's a good friend of mine and um, you know he's open champion and he started his foundation back in 2002 I think or 2001 2002 and I, I ate a lot with Paul and just I just seen the joy he got out of it and um, I thought to myself you know what like you said gratitude I've been grateful and I've been grateful to travel the world and do something I love and I thought you know what I'd like to give something back to the game and hope to see you know and maybe someone can experience the love I've got for the game Welcome to my Run Your Light podcast, and I really do appreciate you tuning into any episode that you can. And the whole idea behind my podcast series is that I am very passionate about understanding human performance. And what drives me is to really dissect and unpack the journeys of different people who are striving for both personal and professional excellence in their life through their chosen field. And the chosen fields may be related to the arts. It could be music. It could be visual arts. Oftentimes, it's uh, sport and physical activity. And that's what really inspires me is to have different guests on my show from different types of backgrounds and to just listen to their story and to listen to their journey and to unpack the guiding framework that has really driven them forward in their life in order to be their best in whatever their chosen field is. And in today's episode, I feel very lucky to have Stephen Gallagher on the show. Stephen is a very well-known golf professional. Uh, He's based on the European Golf Tour. He has been involved in pro golf for 25 years. Um, He has a a wealth of knowledge and experience when it comes to the game of golf. He's from Scotland and has done some wonderful things giving back to the game of golf through his foundation, the Stephen Gallagher Foundation, that he set up in 2012. And what's really inspiring about Stephen's story is the resilience and grit that he has shown over the years in regards to um, his career as, as a professional golfer. And just to kind of set a little more context for uh, the discussion today, I reached out to three people that know Stephen very well. Uh, I've had all three on my podcast. And I just wanted to get them to share some thoughts about Stephen and the impact that he has had on the game of golf, uh, in particular in Scotland. Uh, two of the people, Andrew Coltart and my good friend Mike Robson, I already read their messages in the episode that you're going to listen to, so you'll hear their messages a bit later. But another uh, 
message comes from uh, Gary Nicole. Gary Nicole is a well-known European tour golf coach. He actually coached on the tour uh, for, I think, 16 years. But he is now the director of the Archerfield Performance Center, which is based just outside of Gullen, Scotland, which is about a 30-minute ride from Edinburgh. And what Gary has to say about Stephen is this. I have known Stephen for over 20 years and spent a lot of time with him, both personally and professionally, during that time. Apart from being one of Scotland's top players on a global stage, he is also one of life's good guys and always fun to be around. The impact that he and Paul Laurie have had on Scottish golf with the work they do with their junior foundations is absolutely fantastic. Both he and Paul have put so much back into the game, providing learning and playing opportunities for junior golfers up and down the country, and they both deserve enormous credit for the work they do. Long may it continue. And what I appreciate about Stephen's story, as I said before, is really the grit and resilience that he has shown in his career. And you're going to hear all about that in the episode today. And just to give you a little more background about Stephen, again, he's been on the tour for 25 years. He has four wins on the tour, the the Alfred Dunhill Cup, uh, the Omega Dubai Cup, Golf Classic, which he won back-to-back years in 2013 and 2014, and just recently, last year, he won the Hero Indian Open, which is a European Tour golf event. Stephen has appeared in 20 majors over the years, which is uh, includes two Masters, four U.S. Opens, eight Open Championships, and six PGA Championships. As well, Stephen is also a Ryder Cup champion, having played on the European team in 2014. He was a captain's pick that year, um, selected by Paul McGinley, who was the captain of the team. And as I mentioned earlier, what I really appreciate about Stephen's story is the grit and resilience that he has shown throughout his career. In this episode, you're going to hear Stephen talk about his experiences on the tour. You're going to hear him talk about the years that he didn't win and how he continued to believe in himself and his abilities. You're going to hear him talk about his experience on the Ryder Cup team. And also we dive into what it was like to win again last year. Uh, He won in India uh, with his son caddying for him, which was a very special experience for both Stephen and his son. Even though we dive deeply into golf There is so much good stuff in Stephen's story and in this discussion that truly transcends the game of golf and is applicable to anyone who is striving for both personal and professional excellence in their life. So again, thanks for listening to this episode. And with that, let's jump right into the discussion with Stephen Gallagher. Okay, Stephen, so thanks very much for taking the time to be on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, but we're connected uh, by, first of all, my love of Scotland. I, I've gone to Scotland a number of times, and, and the very first person that I met in Scotland and played golf with was your good friend, Big Mike Robson. <laughs> yeah, I grew up uh, with Mike in the amateur days, and Mike was a big follower on that. Good player himself, but he was a good supporter of Scottish golf and Lothian's golf. So I've, I've had many times and many games with Mikey. 
Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why my family and I keep going back. He's been so welcoming uh, to us and, and extending a, a warm invitation to come back and see him. So we've been back probably four or five times since I first met him in, in 2014. And uh, the thing that amazed me about Mike, the first round I played with him, was that he played cross-handed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he played to about plus two cross-handed and yeah. for the county and all that. Yeah, that's amazing. But um, So, Stephen, I just want to jump in into to kind of frame up the conversation because people have already heard about you in the introduction. They know who you are. And what I want to start with is really having you define the, the personal values, the core values that have been front center in your life that have really led you on the journey you're on and have guided your, your journey. So if you had to summarize what those personal values are or traits, what would those be? Um, I think I think to be anywhere that sort of an individual playing at a high, high level of sport, You've got to be um, you've got to be comfortable in your own company for a start. Um, I think you've got to be you, you know the, the work ethic is a massive thing. Uh, you know I got that instilled in me back in the day. You know with uh, I went I left school and went to work to I left and went full time amateur and you know just to get some money to play. And I think work ethic's the big thing. You've got to work hard. You've got to be dedicated. You've got to. You know, you've got to sacrifice a lot of things at times when you people are doing something and you've got to be so single-minded that you've got to just go with the focus in hand and what your goals are and you've got to be sort of strict with them. So I'd say the hard, you know, you've got to be you've got to be hard working, definitely. You've got to self-discipline and you've got to be driven. And I think all top athletes will have that. And when you when you look at early days, and that's what I want to dive into is early days and in particular, the role that physical activity and sport played in your life. And I've had Olympians on the podcast and I've had pro athletes and I'm always really fascinated by their, their early years and what defined them. And some were single sport focused, some were multi-sport focused, but can you just share early days for you and were you multi-sport focused or was it just a single, single sport golf? I played um, football as a young kid. I was a footballer. So I was a goalkeeper um, all the way through sort of up to 12, 13 years old, 12 years old. And it came to a time when I went to the, I changed school from, I lived in Livingston and I went to school in Bathgate and that's where I was at. And, and it was one of those ones that I keep juggling the football or they I start playing golf. My uncle gave me my sort of first set of clubs, my uncle Johnny. And when I went to Bathgate, my gran and granddad lived in Bathgate. So... I decided to give the football a buy and just try, just focus on the golf. I would go to golf after school and my grandfather would take me over and pick me up and drive me home and whatnot. And then we eventually moved to Bathgate. So, But I, I never played. I never really played golf when I was a young kid. I always had it in my family. My father was a club champion and my uncle was a Ryder Cup captain yeah. and a Ryder Cup player. So golf's always been in the family. I've, I've had a club in my hand, a plastic club in my hand when I was two, three. But... I would always, I would always be be playing like that, but never joined a club really till I was a bit older. Uh, so I played football all my days. Got football at school, played for the school team, played for the sort of local team, Livingston, uh, and then I made a. It was one of those ones I probably wasn't good enough at football, but I, I really enjoyed playing. But I decided to go down the golf route, and uh, at a young age, maybe twelve, thirteen. 
that's one of the things I had Andrew Coulter on the podcast a couple of years ago when he was in Saudi with Sky Sports and, and he talked about his love of football and that team sport and getting so frustrated in his teammates and not being able to control what they do that what really um, inspired him and motivated him about the game of golf was that he had control over what he did. It wasn't dependent on anybody else. But can you talk about that idea of like falling in love with golf, your first kind of, um, you know, those first early days and what attracted you to the game beyond, you know, the family roots in the game, but what really attracted you to the game and, and inspired you to go for it? Um, I think I could, I had the coordination. I had sort of the natural, I could hit the ball in the ball uh, from a young age. Um, I think you've, I think you've got to have a, you've got to have a natural ability. It's tough if you've not got that sort of connection straight away. It's tough to sort of get it later on in life. You know, there's very few people come to sports late and can perform at the highest level. It's something. I was always swinging. I was always going over the golf club with my dad. I was always out putting. I was always chipping. Um, and then when I when I stopped to football, that's when I just decided, right, I'll. I just want to be a professional golfer. Um, and that was, that kind of took over everything um, for me. So that was my only one thing I wanted to be. What age was that? Probably when I was 12. When I sort of gave, got, gave up the football, 12, 13, I thought, right, I'm just going to focus solely on going to the golf. When we moved to Bathgate, I, I, my uncle, John, who gave me my golf clubs. He used to take, I used to go to school, well, I used to go to school, I used to get picked up from school, get dropped off at the golf course. And then at night after my dinner, my uncle John would take me up to the local driving range and I'd hit a couple hundred balls every night. And were you, was it internally driven? Cause a lot of like coming from a golf family, you would know that a lot of golfers out there are really pushed by their father or a relative. I never got, I never got pushed. Oh, never got pushed. Yeah. So there, there was that internal, internal drive there. Yeah. And when did you start to feel like you said you knew that you wanted to become a pro golfer, but when did you really start to feel like this is my path, this is what I'm going to do and actually have, have the game to, to back that up? Um, I think, well, my junior section of my golf club was very, very strong and I had some internationalists. My, one of my close friends who sadly just passed away, Brian Shields, was an internationalist for Scotland and he played for the county when I was sort of 12, 13. So, and in, in my, in my, my golf club, there was a picture of Uncle Bernard and Eric Brown, two Ryder Cup captains and players from Bathgate, from my small 22,000 mining community. Um, so, and I always wanted to emulate them. I wanted to play in the Ryder Cup. That was what was uh, sort of synonymous with Bathgate. And I just set out to try and do that, you know, and, um, my, my junior level was my, my golf club was started winning two tournaments at junior level got then got picked for the, the smaller county then got went in to play for the bigger county and then ended up playing for my country and Great Britain and I, I went through the full sort of the, the proper pathway if you were going to do it from a perfect point of view um, I sort of done that from a sort of young age I was pretty good at a young age I was I was a big kid I was quite heavy I could hit the ball a good distance uh, I loved the game. I was always chipping and putting in the house and doing stuff with it. And um, so I think from a, from when I started winning boys' medals and doing that and competing with guys two or three years older than me from 
12, 13 years old. I knew I, I knew I was I was pretty good. When did you make the biggest drop? You know, so you were, when did you become a single handicap player? And then when did you become a scratch player? Like, um, I, I don't actually know that, believe it or not. I don't, I've been asked that many a time and I can't, I've not got a clue about the handicap. Um, what happened to me was um, when I was young, well, I won the, I won the Scottish amateur, men's amateur match play when I was 17 and and then I won the I won the, the boys that year as well. So I won I was the boys and the men's champion at seventeen, and I think I was scratch plus handicap then, or maybe scratch then. But um, that was the sort of I thought all I needed to do then was sort of turn professional when I won that. I thought that's me. I'm going to turn pro, and thankfully I had the guidance of uh, my uncle Bernard to tell me. He says no, no chance. He says what to do is wait and win everything you can at amateur level, play the Walker Cup. And once you've done that, then you're ready to go. So that was pretty good for me at 17. That gave me a, a sort of goal and a target, what I needed to do before I could then turn pro. But I thought I was a bit wet behind the ears. I just had success um, at a really young age. I was the youngest ever winner of the, of the Scottish amateur. Um, so it was one of those things I thought, that's me. I'm, I just need to turn pro now and I've got it. But I'm so glad I had the guidance of my uncle to tell me to do that and, uh, you know, just sort of follow my career more yeah. by winning. You know, I think if you win at an early level, winners, if you can win at any level, you can win. I think you, you, you learn how to do it. And I think it's a bit more satisfying doing it as an individual. You know, golf's yeah. weird. You don't, you don't feel that feeling with teams very often, but because um, you know that you've put the work in to get it. And when you think about, were you um, process focused back then? Were you technique focused? Was it a balance between between technique and process? And as you know, Gary Nicole and Dr. Carl Morris are all about creating shots. But can you just describe those just before turning pro? What your focus was well, from from probably sixteen year when I was fifteen, I'm, I went and worked with Bob Torrance through the national national uh, Sam Torrance's father. And I was swing, totally swing orientated. Um, I would I would literally just work on my swing. Wouldn't play golf from October to March, and then I'd start playing. I'd have the odd sort of winter winter games, but I wouldn't really take it too seriously. Even if I got beat eight and seven, it wouldn't bother me because I had a goal that I wanted to swing better to hit certain shots. To um, and then it was all about I just yeah you process. I could sort of hit most shots. I was quite talented that way I could hit it low I could play well in the wind I was a good putter creative chipper but I think it was more when I started to win more at amateur you just expected to win it so then when you turned up you were just I'm expecting to win that but I think that becomes you know you, you're not going to do that if you're a 10 handicap and you turn up and you're going to you can have the best mindset in the world you know if it was down to if it was down to mindset Carol Morris would be on the tour you know what I mean <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely right um Patella, you know, I think he plays off 12. So, yeah. Um, has your natural ball flight uh, changed over the years, or did you always, what was your natural ball flight when you were at that age? I used to hit a low hook or a low draw. Um, but again, it was technology's changed. I grew up with my father's clubs, which were very heavy for me. So, I think, I think in a way now, young kids swing prettier now because they've got the, 
they've got the sort of technique nailed down because they've got clubs that fit them. You know, your your son was it your son I met in there? Yeah. yeah. He'll he'll probably have the right clubs set up, US kids yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I had my dad's old one cut down with a stiff shaft, so I think. I think maybe you can get your power element from that by swinging a heavier club earlier, but I, di- I didn't have that too pretty a swing because I had to kind of drag and drag it over. But my ball fight, I think back when I was an amateur, you had to have a ball fight for, to win an amateur level. And then when you turn pro, you have to almost have a different ball fight again. Because um, all the amateur, all the big amateur events are generally links courses at the seaside and windy days and yeah. You know, you've got to keep the ball down. And then when you go on the tour, you've got to fight it up a bit to stop it. Um, so it was, but that was all in the transition. Um, and again, technology's helped. You know, nowadays the ball's quite hard to shift. It's a lot harder and tech, equipment. And, but I still see, I see shots as shapes. I don't, I don't very, I don't see it in straight lines or anything like that. I see it as sort of, as using the wind and bringing in, using slopes. That's just the way I've always seen the game. Yeah, that creative aspect. And when you think of, so you turn pro and, and I just want to touch upon those years when you turned pro before winning in 2004 for the first time, but what were some pivotal experiences when you first turned pro that um, just gave you the momentum and steam to keep plowing forward with your, your game? Yeah. Oh. I turned pro, I, got, I played the Walker Cup and I went to stage two qualifying. I think there was only six people qualified and I managed to qualify for that to get into the final stage of the, the tour school and I finished ninth that year. I missed my card. I found it quite tough, the transition to sort of, to go straight in. You know, one minute you're playing, you're playing, you're playing amateurs, next minute you're playing against Seve and Faldo and Montgomery and all these guys. So you maybe felt a wee bit like a fish out of water, a wee bit out of your depth. And I lost my, I didn't keep in my card that year. Um, then I went back to the tour school, got my card again. Got a bit injured, didn't keep my card that year. And then I went on the challenge tour. And I think 1998, I went on the challenge tour. I had exception for some events, but I think the challenge tour was the one that sort of, I think the challenge tour just now is a fantastic way to learn your trade because it's a way of traveling the world. You do exactly the same as you do in the main tour, but you just don't play for the, the same money. But you, you learn all the aspects that you need. You learn to be comfortable with your style. You learn to kill time. You learn what suits you. You learn how to fly on your own, travel, stay on your own. You're on your own. And you learn about yourself, how you play, how you're under pressure. how you And you know in the challenge tour, you need to win. You can't, nobody had ever got through without winning to get through. So you need to win. So you've got that mindset, I'm going to win again. So And I won, I got beaten two playoffs and I managed to get my cards. And that, that's been me through from 98 all the way through. And your mindset when you're on the Challenge Tour, when you think about your mindset, um, and I don't want to say imply that you doubted yourself in any way because obviously you didn't, but how did that strengthen your mindset at the time? Because you knew you had the game and how did you just stick with the mindset and what was the internal dialogue like during those years? I think it's, I think the good thing that the challenge to is I knew I could, I won, I won it. So uh, I won the European individual. I won in my men's. I won the, I won the 11 trophy. I won quite a lot as an amateur. I nearly won everything, fairness. And then to win it on the challenge tour, it just backs you up that you know you're good enough to win on the main tour. And then, I think the main tour is just one of these ones where 
it does take a little bit of time. You know, I think the guys coming on, you get the odd one that come on, like Sergio and Tiger Woods and Mickelson and Rory, that you knew they were destined to be brilliant anyway. You're there like your Messi's and Ronaldo's at the football. They're always going to be superstars. There's always superstars every now and then. Not a lot of them, but all every now and then. But generally, other people have to, you have to get used to it. You have to feel like you belong there. I think that's the thing. When I went on as a young kid, maybe didn't have that belief that I belong there type thing, or you get a bit awestruck with um, all of a sudden it's, you've came from winning everything to come somewhere where you're nobody and you've got to start again. And I think it's just the process of that. And once you, once you get used to it and you know you're, you belong there, then it's a case of, right, let's try and compete. All you can do is prepare well enough to, uh, to win. You know, you can't say, right, I'm going to win this week. You've got to just do your pre- preparation and get your game plan and whatnot. And if, it, if you get a chance on a Sunday, then it's down to, that's when it becomes down to how you're thinking and feeling and breathing and whatever, you know. But until then, you, all you do is you, it's all in the preparation. Staying in contention, as you say, right? Just stay in contention in, the, in these tournaments. I think when you, if you're in, oh, you, you listen to Woods, you listen to Nicholas, you listen to all the boys. All they wanted to do was get into contention. The more times you get into contention, you know, Nicholas has got more runners up in third places than he has wins. You know, he's not he, he's not won eighteen majors, and he only had a chance to win eighteen. He had a chance to win about fifty, yeah. sixty. You know, but he just. It's tough to win, and you, you, and but once you learn how to do it, it becomes a bit easier. Yeah, and in 2004, 19 under, you go into a playoff with Graham McDowell, uh, and obviously that meant a lot to you. There's, it's a no-brainer to say that it meant a lot to you, but just describe kind of the feeling that came with that win and what it helped you to better understand about yourself uh, in those early days. Yeah, well, I worked with a psychologist on tour for a bit, um, for quite a while. John Pates, he's a good friend of mine. I still speak to him um, every now and then. And I remember saying to him at Wentworth that year, I looked at the leaderboard and it was like VJ Singh, um, you know, Luke Donald, Montgomery, all the top guys, Faldo Clark. And I says, John, how do we get up there? You know, I, I says, I, I says uh, you know, I was, I was playing okay, but just couldn't. You know, I had my chances. I was plenty of top tens. I said, I want to be up there one day. You know, how did we beat them? And it was it was quite funny because on the Sunday, just before I went out on the downhill, he, he brought the, the sheet and says, you're above them all now. Look, VJ Singh was below me. Look, Donald was below me. And Nels was below me. You know, look, world, world number one was below me. You know, stuff like that. He says, there's no reason why you can't win this one either. Just stick to your processes and go out and do it. And that's basically what I've done. And then playoff you know we were coming down the playoff and one ball's in a divot one wasn't and I wasn't in the divot and Graham hit it in the water and I hit it to two foot so it was pretty like you say it was uh, what, if you're going to win your maiden win, win it was um, in St Andrews has got to be one of the places for a Scott and the home of golf so it was definitely something special especially to know that I could beat an esteemed field like that because it was a it was a proper field that year and, there's a lot of good players playing in it. So once you do that, that's good for the, the self-confidence. And can you talk about the process a bit and how your process has, has changed or not changed or the tweaks and modifications you've made? But the process is obviously seeing the shot, you know, the shot you want to hit. Yeah, well, I'm pretty much, I just explain to the caddy, I say, this is the shot I see. Like my son's carrying for me now, I'll say, right, I've, I've got one, I see, I see that shot there, I'm going to hit, you know, 
I'm going to hit. I'm going to hit it. I'm going to hold into the wind. I'm going to land it there and just let it up verbally see it. And then he'll say, right, well, if you're going to do that, you need to hit this club. You know what I mean? So, so then all I do is, you know, I'm I'm over the I'm, I, I I'll stand behind the ball. I'll do a swing for the feeling of that swing. Then I walk into the shot, looking at my target, and I have two looks, and all I'm thinking about is my target. I don't think of anything in my swing at all. Target orientated all the time for me. Um, and the, I, I'm actually better under pressure because when you're under pressure, you can only go into your you can only go into your zone anyway and into your processes. I'm I'm worse when I don't talk it through it and I just go through the motions. I need a bit of high energy and a bit of sort of you know to see the shot and almost put myself under a bit of pressure, uh, like when I'm doing my card when I'm sitting in my caddy, so that I can just go straight into my target. I don't think anything else apart from the target. Um, and I, and I've been and I think when I do that, that's why the the next best thing that I'm pretty good at is acceptance levels are high. Uh, that's what you have to have a hundred percent to be a top golfer. You have to have a brilliant acceptance of where the ball is, and then same process again. Target, give yourself. All I try and do is give myself a hundred percent commitment and clarity in the shot I'm going to do, and then it's just a target, and then it's ex- and then accept where it is, and then it's the exact same again, and that's it. It's nothing. It sounds easy, but it's really tough to do. Yeah, sure it is. And, uh, you know, so I, I've spent a lot of time with Gary and I've worked with Carl Morris um, as well. And my son went to Carl Morris's uh, Mind Factor training. So my son was the youngest to ever graduate from the three-day program. And uh, he also spent some time with Gary uh, last year at uh, Archerfield. And it's this idea of, you know, creating the shot. And, and instead of visualizing the shot, it's just a question, what shot do I want to hit? And then the visualization comes automatically, right? And it's such an important skill to learn as, as a golfer it, that applies, transcends golf too, and is applicable in any sport really, is just imagining yourself creating your performance, you know? Yeah, I think I, think I do. I think I see it first. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. almost know the shot I'm going to hit before I even get to the ball. Yeah. As you um, Just because you kind of, yeah, you know, you'll get to learn to trust your gut. You know, it's almost, that's a shot I see, you know. And then it's like, then work back from it. Yeah. You know, I see that shot and they might go, well, your caddy might go, well, you better blow the hole or you better right. You know, it depends. You never normally go to the flag anyway. You're always playing for sides or wind or whatever. Or, um, but, you know, you just evaluate things, but I get that. That's exactly what we do. I know Carl and Gary well. They're both great lads, top uh, top coaches, and they're doing a great job as well. And that that is true. I mean, a lot of it is with kids, like you're saying with your son, is to get them into it, get them involved, get them pitching it, get them creating, hitting different shots, and all that. You know, that's that's what you've got to be. You've got to be able to have a shot for every scenario. Um, the worst thing is a golfer you want is standing over saying, "I can't hit this shot." Yeah. You know, you've maybe not, you've maybe never practiced it. You've never, maybe never, you know, visualized that shot before. So I think there's definitely a lot of that. You have to have it twinned with a bit of technique as well. I think you've got to have the technique to back it up. Yeah. Um, you know, they're both, they're hand in hand. I don't know what, you know, does the body rule the mind or does the mind rule the body? Yeah. It's one of those ones. It's, I try not to go into it too deep. I try and, I'm a bit more of a feel. I like to see it and, and, you know, I can 
I can hit the shots, but I don't necessarily know how I've done it yeah. a few of the time. But, um, you know, and I think then you go to partners, it's a totally different game. I think you can almost roll the ball and, uh, you know, if you just tell yourself, I'm going to hold this, I'm going to hold this all the time in your head, there's a good chance you're going to hold it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, when you think of, you know, one of the things that fascinates me about uh, elite sport, uh, and in your case in particular, 2004 to 2013, nine years, I think it was 201 tournaments where you hadn't won. And that's what Andrew Coulthard said uh, when he was on my podcast is, you know, the majority of golfers on the tour have to accept that they're going to win 1% of the time. And it's the oh, one yeah. stick with it that, that just believe and stick with it that, you know, will ultimately succeed. But can you just talk about, cause those years were, were played with injury. I know they were difficult years, but you stuck with it and just talk about that spell and, and what got you through that time and, and what you learned about yourself and, and what you you're, you hope that others learn from your experience and the lessons you want to share from that experience? Yeah, I think um, it is tough to win. You know, that's the that's the key. Um, and I think what happened with me was I had a lot, I had a few seconds, a few thoughts, a few force this. You know, it was not for I got myself into contention, and just uh, it wasn't my week. Um, you know, I had a family, two young kids, um, growing through that spell as well. Just different things happen in your life. You know, you have uh, you have um, people pass away, and you know, you just have you're getting a bit older. You have a bit of different life skills that happen. And I got an autoimmune disease in 2009 or 2010, I think, which floored me for a year and a bit. I got sarcoidosis, had to take steroids and. Uh, and then I only had a small medical exemption, but I went back to the tour school and I had a putt in the last to win the tour school. Uh, I three-putted it. I got knocked it past and missed it, but I finished third in that. So for me to go back to the tour school in, in my 30s, you know, then I finished second or third in the PGA at Wentworth that year and kept my card. And, and it was just a case of, right, I know once I'm through this, and you just mature a bit more, I think, as well. And... Um, it is tough to win, you know. That's a, that's a hard thing. But I think what happened was I got stuck in about 2012 when I came, 2012, 2013. I still had my goals to play in a Ryder Cup. And I came back from the, the sort of sarcoidosis, had a good season, give me the category to get into a few bigger events. And I sat down at Heathrow one day and I said, right, how can I, the Ryder Cup's going to be in Glen Eagles, 35 miles from my house. The last time it was there in Scotland was uh, Muirfield in the 70s. It's probably not going to be back in my generation again in Scotland. So I said, right, I'm going to get into that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to focus everything to get into this. And I just wrote down what I need to do. And I was so honest with myself. I went through everything. I've still got the notes. I've got the notes there. And I went through the whole lot. And carry coaches, family life, um, you know, equipment, where I need to improve, what do I, how do I need to improve, what do I, how can I do it, set a, game, set a strategy, a plan, do I need to go to different coaches, do I need to keep the coach, do I need to, um, and then I, I basically done that at the end of 2012, I think, and, you know, I mean, I, I had different steps, you need to, to get in the right of cup, you need to be playing in the majors and WGCs, so then you need to be in the top 100 of the world for a start, so 
my first goal was to get in the top 100 of the world and then after that it was right you need to win events so I said to myself generally you can't get in the Ryder Cup without winning so I targeted a th- three or four tournaments I thought that suited my eye and suited my game I've went close before one was Dubai one was in Glen Eagles uh, one was the sort of um, the Open as well I fancied a good crack at that um, round Lynx courses and that was basically what I'd done from you know 2012 and it was more I think my next two ones were more a case of because I, I had a greater goal in mind uh, to try and get in the Ryder Cup they were sort of I just sort of they were they were I, I knew I tar- I'd specifically targeted certain courses and certain shots and certain holes and I practiced them uh, to the nth degree and then it and it paid off sort of thing and then I sort of you know and that was what helped me get in that and, and you can I think coming back from the sarcoidosis and having a good year was the one that sort of gave me the boost to keep going it would have been easy to you know you have your doubts when you're ill I was putting on weight I was I was very weak I was the steroids were going for me I had a lot of side effects um, but you know, golf's the one that the, the thing I've I've always wanted to. I've always been single-minded, and I wanted to to play Ryder Cup, and I wanted to sort of play golf, and and I just sort of worked my way back from then. Yeah, and one of the the things I want to ask you about is that idea of gratitude, because when you were away from the game, and then you started to recover from your illness, how much did gratitude for being able to play the game? How much did gratitude come back? Or how, how much did gratitude play in that? Well, I've always been. I've always been thankful. I've always been grateful. Basically, to I've been fortunate to travel the world and um, you know do something I love. There's not many people can say that, and I'm I'm blessed that way. And you know, you always you always get doubts when you're out, but I'm quite lucky. I've got great family and friends. You know, I never I'm never one for really getting down and. And stuff like that. If I, if I if I have got something, I, I would speak about it anyway. I would never keep it in. So yeah. I've been great that way. I've had a lot. Of, I've had a good support people around about me. So there's not nothing really like that. Yeah. I always knew I was. I always knew I was going to come back. So it doesn't. It didn't really bother me. Right. And you know, you finished. I think you that year 2014. You knowing you needed to put together good rounds. Well, 2013, you know, I actually went and got my, my, my nephew was living in Australia and I got him to come and stay with us because I was going to be, um, I think I'd gone to the US Open and stuff. I was going to be playing uh, and I won Dubai early doors, which got me in 2013, which, uh, which got me into quite the world events and stuff like that. And so my, my nephew came and stayed in the house because with my, to help, you know, sort of the school runs and yeah. and just help. And he's a good kid as well. And just take a bit of stress off Helen. Helen could come and travel with me and it made it a bit easier for me. That was one of the, one of the things that I, I came up with with that. And, you know, we went in Dubai early doors, opened a lot of things for us. I finished decent and they made the open. And, um, and then 2014, went in Dubai again, which yeah. was just what you had to do. You know, that was in the pro... The first one wasn't in the Ryder Cup points, but it gave me the platform to get into the good events, to be able to compete in them for the year I needed anyway. So I kind of everything fell into place um, perfectly. And then won 2014, and then you know I finished sixth in the Rao in the world event. Uh, came close, got beaten a playoff um, for this in Sweden, and just had some really good tournaments. And just 
you know, pushed myself to the limit to try and get in it, playing transatlantic, playing everywhere. Well, the Masters as well. I mean, you, you made the kind of the Masters. I think you finished tied 35th that year. And I had a good start, actually. I was, I was on the leaderboard after maybe 18, uh, maybe 20 odd holes. And then Amy and Connor bit me in the arse, um, which it's done for a lot of people. <laughs> Again, it's just a thing. If you go there more often, you probably used to it. And, you know, you hear all the guys. I think experience there pays off no end uh, when you see guys that win it. They generally do well every year because they know how to play it and they know the nuances of it. Um, but it's certainly one of what what a place that was, and I cherished my time there. I loved it. Well, that's one of, one of the things I, I wanted to ask you before moving forward with the discussion is uh, a lot of golf fans around the world, you know, watch the Masters from TV, a very two D version, and they know the greens are fast, but they don't understand the elevation. Uh, so can you just talk about just to give people more of a 3D image in their head of how difficult the elevation is of the course and how um, difficult some of those shots are that the players face? Oh, it's a proper tough golf course and it's unbelievably hilly. Um, I think the hard thing, that one of the toughest things about Augusta is, is the slopey lies on the fairways you get. You know, you can have a downslope trying to get to a front flag which is a really tough shot vice versa like the, the, tee, the second shot into 13 the par 5 the ball can be two feet above you you know which pr- promotes the hook and you know and, and you're maybe having to try and hold one to the right flag it's such a you know it's a tough demanding goal. you've got to be able to hit you've got to be very good with slopes you know the, the tenfold I couldn't believe how far you go down on 10 I mean it's literally it must be 500 feet drop or something from T to G. It's so far downhill. And 11's the same. 10 and 11 and 12 go way down. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe the slope, the severity of the slopes uh, when I got there. And I think, I think the key to that place is, is you, you know, generally the, the fairways are really, really wide. But there's certain sides you need to hit it down to get to certain pins. It's not just I hit every fairway. You could hit every fairway on that course and shoot 79 because you're you're actually not the right angle in so it's actually tough to get to the flag you've got to hit it down certain sides of fairways which gives you the best chance percentage wise to get it close to that pin in that certain that certain day I think I think that's the thing with Augusta you've got to be you've got to sort of it's a and I was lucky enough I played practice rounds with Jose Maria Lazabal and Jimenez who used to play with Seve and I played with Sandy Lyle, you know, guys that had won round there. And, and that's what you learn when you play with these guys that always play well around that you, they, they teach you slight things, you know, the pins here, just don't even go for it. Just hit it there every day. And like the 11th hole, the 12th hole, the par three, they've said, just hit it straight over the middle of the bunker. Do not go for any pin. He says, I've never went for a pin there in my life. And he's won it. He says, Seve never went for a pin there in his life. And, uh, you know, set other holes, you know, just hit it over the back of this so it doesn't matter. It's an easy chip, you know, get a four and get get away. And and, and it's just, you know, that's just their simple way of playing it. And the greens, you know, the greens are, they're not as fast as you think. They are if you get, if you get a position, they're ridiculous because you twin the, you twin the slope with the, with the speed. Um, but the key, you know, you watch Faldo when he won round there and that, he was always, if you can get pin high round there, you've, you, the greens the same speed all the time whereas if you're 
you know, if you're putting right up a slope and then down a slope, it's slow up and fast down, obviously. But yeah. So it can muck a little bit with your feel. The key is just trying to get it to the right level. And, you know, if you can get, you're not, you're not, your distance from the pin there, you're not going for a lot of pins because they're really severe, unless it's soft. If it's soft, that's when you see the high scores they can shoot um, because you can go at the flags. But generally, you know, it's a think, a very th- much a thinking golf course. Right, and and walking out of uh, Augusta in 2014, and then ultimately being selected by McGinley as a captain's pick, um, based on performance, not being from Scotland. Um, but can you just talk about? Obviously, that was your dream <laughs> to play on home soil in the Ryder Cup, and talk about what that meant to you, and and just those, you know, that week and you know, what, what it did for you and what it meant to you? Oh, well, well, whenever you reach your goal, you normally set your goals high and try and get somewhere around about it. But um, I set my goals high for that and I, I managed to to get it. You know, I wanted to be like my uncle and the Eric Brown and Basket Golf Club. I wanted to get my picture up on the wall type thing with the blazer on. Or, and, um, and to do it in Scotland was, well, it was phenomenal. Everything you can ask. And um, it was the best week, you know. It's it's a, t- it's a tough week. It's a long week. Your your time is not your own, but you're spending time with you know eleven of the best players in the world. Uh, Paul McGinley put the, the captains and the, the backroom staff put in so much effort to make it stress free, down to the colour of the carpet, the curtains, the food, the, the pictures, the inspirational quotes, the you know everything, and uh, what you're wearing and. And and the only thing I would maybe have changed from the week would be that when I was practicing, you know, because I was the only Scott there, it was tough signing autographs. I was always running up and, you know, giving too much time. I think I'd probably be a wee bit more selfish and do it all at the end, you know. Yeah. But I think I'm just overwhelmed with it with the crowds and the, and everything, the media and we've been the only Scott in it and um and that was the only thing I found a bit tough where I spoke to Rory after it and a few guys after it and they just kinda go on with the practice and do it later on at, at sort of staged times. Um, but it was one of the best things that I've ever been involved in. And, you know, I, I absolutely loved it, having your family there, your pals there. And to win it was, was even better. Yeah, yeah. What a great story. And and what I, I love about your story is, you know, after 2014, another five years before your win in India, and going back to that idea of resilience and, and work ethic and knowing that you had good stuff in there to win again. And then with your son in the bag, which is a great story. But, you know, I was talking to Gary yesterday and look what I have, you know, the last start. <laughs> right. And, oh. yeah. and Gary, you know, he, he's such a believer in just, let good stuff happen. Good stuff will flow from the game. And, and you know, when you made a quadruple on seven, I mean, so many people would, you know, just write themselves off and just get down. And I think you had said, okay, we're only five shots out after making a quadruple bogey on, on the seventh. Talk about that tournament and what that meant to you to have your son in the bag, make the quadruple, and then get in that flow the the final you know eleven holes twelve holes. Well, well, the thing was after the Ryder Cup, um, you know, I stressed my whole body to try and to get in it. Came out it, and there was obviously a bit of a dip because you're 
you know, if you've kind of reached your goal, it's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was 40 year old. Um, I got, I had five injections in my wrist, uh, ended up getting wrist surgery a couple of years after it, and was had to change a bit of my swing. I changed coach. And then I'd done the same sort of thing. I was, you know, I thought to myself, right, what do I do now? My caddy just left me, phoned my father up. My son's been around about golf all his days. He's watched me. Just got, he's a one golfer himself. I says to my dad, I says, what do you think? I says to my wife, I'm, I'm thinking about it. He didn't, my, my son wasn't, didn't really like school. He got on, he'd done it and he passed, but he wasn't. He was going through the motions. And I said, what do you think about taking Jack out? I thought, you know, it would give me a bit of a spark. Um, it'd be great traveling with your son. You can stay with him. I can kill time with him. I won't be as lonely. Um, and he knows my game inside out. So he came out and we, we sort of, we sort of, we, I mean, I think I missed one cut in 11. We, we, we done from the Scottish Open. First week, finished 10th in a Rolex event with the son on the back. And then, you know, we get the next year and like you say, we're in contention in India. The year before, I, I was playing the last group as well. So it was a course I, I really liked and I finished sort of seventh or eighth, Matt Wallace. Well, I played with Matt Wallace when he won it. And, um, like you say, I took that quadruple and I stood in the ninth tee. But what you don't realise, the wind was swirling everywhere, and it was a tough, tough, tough day. And we all, we had the tough holes coming. You know, there's been a few tough holes, and I, and I stood on that tee and I says, "Listen, we're only five shots behind." I says, "The guys, the leaders, having you know, I was maybe two groups ahead, or one group, one group ahead." And I says, "Come on, let's let's sort of knuckle down here. We've got a par five. And, uh, and post a score on the par five, I knocked it on in two. Uh, I think I birdied it. But no, I think I actually knocked it on the front and didn't make birdie. But then there's a drivable par four over water the next. I knocked a three wood on the green and birdied it. Birdied the 10th hole, hit a lot, two lovely shots in there. And then and then finished with, uh, I think I finished with three birdies at the last four. And I was standing on the last tee and the wind was there was a massive delay, but I've just birdied the 17th and Jack, it's a, it's an unbelievable golf hole. I don't know if you've ever seen it with the rocks and the green sits peanut shaped to you. So, and you're going up about, you're probably going up about 50 meters to the green and the wind's swirling and I'm in between clubs and Jack says, I think it's just one of these shots and I hit it and I hit a, probably one of the, well, it was, it was up there with one of the best shots. I hit it to 12, but 80 foot and I hold it, but you could take 10 on that hole you could take 12 on that hole and then I stand on the next tee and it's the winds there's hazard all the way down the left and the wind's off the right and uh, and I'd been working on my game I knew that if I keep the ball up all I had to do was keep the ball up and I knew that would hold it into the wind so I just said to Jack I'm just going to hold it in the wind but it was a five six minute delay eight minute delay so I just put the club back in the bag and just just talking away to Jack I'd already picked his shot uh, and just you know you do a couple of breathing techniques so you just it didn't really bother me I'm just I knew the shot I was going to hit I'm, I'm playing well I knew I was joint lead uh, I was leading by one but I, I heard a roar down below so I thought the guy had birdied it so all I was trying to do was get it it's a two tier fairway you can hit it down the right but if you hit it down the left it makes the hole 600 yards but you can reach but it makes the hole so much shorter so what I wanted to do was hit it straight and just let the wind drift it. I didn't want to put right to left shape on it because it could bring the hazard into play. So all I'd done was move the ball up um, and 
and I hit probably one of the best drives I've hit. Right, you couldn't have went, you couldn't have walked down and placed it any better. You bombed and it. Then I, you hit it 380. You hit it 380, didn't you? Yeah, something like that. And then uh, and then I had a four iron, a perfect four iron. I had a great target, the flag of the Indian flag. Again, it was the exact same shot. It was a little down off the right, and I just hit an unbelievable shot. I hit probably one of the best shots I've ever hit. I hit four iron eight. 10, 12 foot behind the hole. And then, you know, again, it was just, that was my routine. I says to Jack, it's a four iron, just hold it in that flag and let the wind just drop it in. Um, just went in and just looked at the flagpole and smacked it on the, no, no swing thought, nothing. And then I get down and we could see behind, I was joint level, the guy birdied it. But I could see he's hitting the hazard um, off the tee and I seen him drop it and lay up. So he, um, my putt was a really smelly downhill quick uh, you know and I just had to give it two foot a borrow and try and just use this you know there's always different lines for putting you can be aggressive and knock it right edge or you, that wasn't one for being aggressive so it was just a you pick the side of the hole I wanted to hit it in and, and I just missed it and I made my four three birdies the last four so basically the guy had to hold it to tie with me um, to put it in a playoff and he missed it and you know that's probably I, I would say that probably is, the, is my best ever thing in golf. Not the Ryder Cup. I think it, the Ryder Cup getting to it was sort yeah. of... But, but to win me your son in the bag and um, it was Mother's Day and, you know, it was it was just one of those... And to win a game, which is yeah. brilliant. You know, but what I came through, it was like the, coming through the sarcoidosis and making changes. I'd done the same. So, so now, I, you know, now I... I, I I've up my work ethic in the gym and stuff now and whatnot. And you want, you know, I want to, I want to win again with Jack. And just bringing him out in the bag sort of rejuvenated me. And I'm forty, you know, I'm forty six in November, but I'm, I'm feeling good and I feel, I just feel as though I can still win it. You, uh, and you know, that's the target. It's just to get into that and try and emulate it. Yeah, and that's that's such a great thing and, and such a great journey and looking forward. Um, you know, I wanted to talk to you about um, in segueing into the last part of the, the episode is kind of the legacy that you want to leave behind. And and one of the things that uh, about professional sports and professional athletes is that, you know, they often give back to the game, whatever sport they play, but many wait until after retirement uh, and and your Stephen Gallagher Gallagher Foundation, you know, you you created in 2012 when you were going through that spell between 2004 and 2013, and you know, so you started that foundation to give back to the game when you were still playing. And I just want to uh, read you something here, okay? Because I have a couple messages for you, actually. Okay, and this is, this is as much for the listener as it is for you, because I reached out to a few people that you know to um, share a message about you, and and it's it leads nicely into the question that I have about your foundation. But um, I'm just going to read a message from our good friend Mike Robson. So Mike says, "I'm honored to be a friend of Stevens and have known him and his immediate family for 30 years." I followed his career closely since then. We played county golf together in the early 1990s, and I watched him play for Scotland in the home internationals in 92, 93, 94, and 95. He achieved the pinnacle of amateur golf 
and was selected to the Ryder Cup team that beat the Americans, including Tiger Woods in 95. All information is on, online. But what you don't know about uh, Stephen is not online. He has overcome injury and pain during his career that accounted for a lean period, but bounced back with the Dubai wins and the selection for the 2014 Ryder Cup. He keeps in touch with all of his friends and is just one of the boys. He is one of the few successful golfers who have put something back into the game, having established his foundation in 2012. I have firsthand experience of witnessing the excitement that hundreds of kids get who have benefited from his foundation. And Stephen always makes a point of attending the events if he's home. A memory I always have of Stephen was back in 2014. It had just been announced that he was one of McGinley's wildcard picks for the Ryder Cup. And a couple days later, I was helping him out at one of his foundation events at Kingsfield for about 120 kids and parents. And the place was buzzing as Stephen was there. And like everyone else, I congratulated, congratulated Stephen and his selection. And his reply was, thanks, Mikey, but I don't know what all the fuss is about. Basically, everyone was more excited than him. Quite simply, a top guy. Um, Andrew Coltart also writes, uh, and again, this is for the listener, but I also want you to know these messages. Um, Andrew Coltart writes, Stephen has had a huge impact on golf in Scotland. Stepping out of the shadow of his uncle, he became a multiple winner on tour. Amongst others, there was winning the Dunhill, for example, at the home of golf, becoming the first man to defend the Dubai Desert Classic, and of course, the pinnacle of his achievements representing Europe in the Ryder Cup. He has inspired many to take up the game, but also to follow his lead as a brilliant role model. But it's also away from the camera that Stephen has inspired. His Gallagher Foundation has tempted the next generation to our wonderful game and also being at hand to offer help and advice. He is passionate about providing a platform for kids of all backgrounds to take up the game and also a pathway for the very best to realize their dreams. I have a message from Gary that uh, I'm I'm going to read in the introduction um, to the podcast, but I wanted the listeners, you know, just to hear some special messages of people that know you, that know you're not just about golf, you're about connecting with others and making a difference. And, and that's the question I want to ask you about your foundation is, you know, what is your biggest hope and uh, the legacy that you want to leave behind in regards to your foundation? Um, well, first of all, I'm flattered by Mike and Andy's words there. I'll need to buy them a pint sometime uh, for that. <laughs> then you can tell me what they really said. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think I spent... Paul Laurie's a good friend of mine and, um, you know, he's open champion and he started his foundation back in 2002, I think, or 2001, 2002. And I, I ate a lot with Paul and just I just seen the joy he got out of it. And... Um, I thought to myself, you know what? Like you said, gratitude. I've been grateful, and I've been grateful to travel the world and do something I love. And I thought, you know what? I'd like to give something back to the game and hope to see, you know, and maybe someone can experience the love I've got for the game that maybe never had the chance to try it. And 
I've put free golf on for kids at Swanston, where Mike's the manager. Um, they've got a lovely nine-hole golf course there with mats that can play all year round. And I put tournaments on for them. But basically, I just I didn't want anyone. I, I didn't want a kid to have an excuse for not playing golf. I thought, you know, if if a kid says, oh, "I've not got any money," well, I've got clubs here. I've not got any shoes. Well, there's shoes there. You know, I've not got anybody to play. You can come and play at Swanston for nothing. Um, I've not, you, I give them balls, tees, um, hats when they come and play. They get coached by a one-on-one coach by a PGA professional, Jane Conakin or David Barnes, who have been brilliant for us as well. And um, and my my whole goal is is pretty simple, really, is to get more people playing golf. It's as simple as that. And I think the way to do it is to do it at a young level, get them and you know get them encapsulated at an early age, so they like it. And and then give them the right pathway going forward to end up so they end up joining a golf club and keep the cycle of golf going. It's as simple as that. And now I'm into into thirty odd primary schools and quite a few uh, secondary schools and take them out of golf. You know, we do eight week blocks. Take them out of school golf and take them to the local driving range down at Kingsfield or up at Swanston or the Braids and. And basically, you know, when you're taking them out of an environment, they've got to learn the etiquette, they've got to learn to be respectful, they've got to interact with older people, they're out in the open, they're fresh air, they're exercising. So it ticks a lot of boxes as well, golf. You know, it's it's not just the golf side of it. It teaches them about the the other aspects of it, the, the you know, the, the discipline, the the honour that golf has, the sort of it's a, it's quite a you know, it's a very it's a good sport that way that it's, you know, you get a lot of good life skills from golf. Um, and, and that's what I do. I put on events for the elite as well. Uh, I put on an under 18 national event that gets counted for so that kids can get picked for their teams. We, we do a lot of inter foundation work with the Barry Douglas, with the Paul Laurie foundation. We, um, but the most thing I like is just, you know, we put flag events on for young kids and beginners to get a flag. They get 36 shots and you know a personal best could be the fifth fairway or the fifth and then the next time they go out they get to the sixth tee and that's them achieved their goal they've, they've beat their previous best you know and then to see the young kids they get to the ninth hole and once they get to the ninth and they've still got the flag in their hand they've done it in under 36 shots then they can start to go into stroke play and play nine hole stroke play once they get good at nine hole stroke play they move up to 12 and 18 hole so it's just, but most of all, I want to see them have fun. You know, I want to make it fun for them as well. And I turn up every now and then when I can. And my wife helps out. She does the she does the books for the foundation and the, the accounts. And I've got my, my good friend Stuart Johnson, Scott Knowles, um, who I again used to play with Mike, who who helped run my foundation. I've got a board that are you know same as me, golf minded, and my manager and stuff that. And we all just want to put back. And I think you've got to give back in this life. I think that's eight years I've been doing it. Um, you know, just to just to see the smile on kids' faces that maybe I didn't have the chance to do it. I've had young girls come up to me and say, I didn't even know my dad played golf. And, uh, you know, now, I'm, now he's taking me out to play because I love it. And, uh, you know, just things like that. That's the thing that little things like that can just give me more satisfaction than most things. And, uh, and I love doing it. And, I'd love to do it for more and I'd love to keep doing it. And I think the reason I think I've done it when I was still playing is, is you can get more relevance. Kids can see you playing yeah. and it gives you a little, you know, when you finish, when I finish and say I finish and I'm 54 and I go and do it, people be like, well, 
did you used to play the game or did you, you know they they don't know if you played I thought you've got to do it when you play I think you've I think people some people can maybe wait till it's too late I think um, I think you've got to give back when you're doing it as well and you know I'm not doing it for my own self I'm doing it because I'm passionate about uh, I want I want kids to experience the level of love and fulfilment and joy I get from playing golf simple as that yeah and that's one of the things that I'm really big on in, in the work that I do in education is helping educators understand the power and influence they have over changing lives and, and giving young people a, a purpose. Uh, for me, early days, it was golf and American football. I grew up in Canada, but I say American football because it wasn't, it wasn't football, soccer. It was the game of uh, American football. But um, those are really important things, you know, to to inspire young people to have a purpose. And human psychology is, is very rooted in this idea that true fulfillment comes from serving a purpose that is greater than ourselves. And that's what you're doing with, with your work. And I think of my own son's journey. He just started playing golf over a year ago. Um, and as a golfer, a very competitive golfer early years and, and loving golf, I didn't want to push my boys and then we have a course 400 meters away, and I finally convinced him to go out and start chipping balls right before the Euro European, the first Saudi event. And then he went yeah. out and he saw he saw the players, and then he was inspired to play. So he's just been playing over a year, and he won the junior championship this year and shot two over. And being at the second Saudi event totally inspired him. And that's what it's about. It's, it's changing lives through sport. You know, and whether it's music, art, or sport, in my son's case, it's golf, but it really is such a powerful thing to make a difference on a young person's life that will change the course of their life. Oh, definitely. Well, that's, that's why we come to tournaments in Saudi, you know, to try and grow the game there. You yeah. know, the boxing's gone there, the Formula One, everything's emerging there. And it is the kid. I think that's why I'm passionate about it. I think the only way to keep golf going and the evolution of it is you've got to get kids in early an age. You know, there's so many other sports that they can play. You've got to get them a way of enjoying golf, that they like it, they don't find it a bind, they want to get better. And then once you get them, it's just a case of sort of uh, keeping them there and putting on stuff for them to improve, that they still enjoy it and they don't, They've not been forced to play it. They want to play it themselves. I think that's the key. Um, you know, I see it with parents. Push some pushy parents can push them too much. And will will this kid get put off? Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Generally, it always doesn't. But um, you know, I, I tend to sort. I've got that's when I've got good people working for me that can sort of say, "Listen, it's all about it's all about enjoyment here. It's all about enjoying the game and 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 trying to get better. You know, we can make them better." a way that they don't know they're getting better and they don't know they're pushing themselves at such a young age it's more through fun and, and competing and uh, competing without competing you know what I mean you play little games and you play you know flag events great because it's you know it's a, a personal best getting to the seventh as I said or the seventh fairway or and you get a certificate for that and it's just a way of sort of getting them like you say you your son got involved, loved it the first year. Now he's engrossed with it because he's seen it again. He knows he can, he likes it, and he can. He's he's pretty good, obviously, as well. Mm -hmm. So that's I'm delighted to hear things like that because that's what we have to try and 
you want the positive headlines. You don't want any negative headlines when you play a sport. You've got to conduct yourself in a way that, you know, that you've got to remember that the kids are watching and they're the future and, and they learn from you. So the more you can sort of do everything right, the better that you're portraying for, for, to the kids. And then the, the game of golf uh, is the, is, is benefit, is, um, it's getting better for it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's very much rooted in this, this idea. And this is based on research is what, what really drives people um, towards a craft, whether it be the arts, music or sport is delight and joy. And it's different than fun. Fun is very superficial. Like you, know, you can play a tag game, you know, as kids and it's fun. But to experience deep joy and delight is what actually makes the difference. And that's, that's what really captivates people with, with sport and finding that. Well, I, I think that way as well. You've got to have competitiveness. Yeah. You know, so I'm, you know, even though they're doing the flag event, the only way they can get into the nine hole is by completing the flag event. So they've still yeah. got to, you're still competing, but they're not, if you know what I mean. So you still, yeah. someone's got to win and someone's got to lose. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a big fan in the sort of school sports day where nobody wins. Uh, you know, I mean, I get it and I get why they're doing it, but I think you need a little bit of, to, especially if you're playing an uh, individual sport, you know, that you spend 99% of your life losing. <laughs> you know, like Jack Nicholas is probably 90, 70% of his life losing, you know, yeah. uh, whatever, or 95 or 94 or something. So, I think you've got to you've got to have that will to want to win and, and get better individually. But you know, when you're starting kids out at a really young age, it's just finding out if they enjoy it or not. Yeah. And then you can start the process like what I went through to go all the way up. Um, so that's basically all we're trying to do is just get them in. Do you like it and through the schools? I think I'm, I'm a big advocate for getting them at the school level, trying to. Uh, trying to sort of give them that option of another sport. I like kids playing multiple sports at young ages because it's good for their fitness, coordination, balancing their bodies, you know. Yeah. Um, and if they'd like the golf and they hopefully get better, well, hopefully they stick with it. Yeah, that's the thing that we're trying to do here in Saudi at the school that um, here on campus is uh, introducing golf in the physical education program because we have the course here. So we have a cycling program, uh, a cycling unit where we get kids on bicycles and skateboards. But now we're trying to, after the cycling unit, get them on their bikes to go to the course as part of PE, yeah. as part of physical education, then get them chipping. And it's such a powerful thing because it's tapping into the community and what's available into the community and building this PE program around what's available in the in the community so that if you're inspiring kids in PE, physical education, then they can take it immediately into their life after school. And that's what we're trying to build here. And the event was great um, in Saudi because we could have the kids go over and watch the players. And, and uh, we had more kids starting to play the game as a result of that. And Stephen, what I want to ask you in closing is um, nothing to do with golf, but these crazy-ass times of uncertainty with the public health crisis. But, you know, when you think about the public health crisis, how it's impacted the whole world, what has kept you inspired during these times of uncertainty? 
And what's one thing that you will carry with you from this public health crisis experience that you will apply more regular, uh, with more regularity in your life afterwards? Um, well, I think, and personally, I've, the lockdown, I've quite enjoyed it, to be honest, because I've spent um, 25 years travelling of 30 weeks a year away. And it's just been lovely to spend, you know, my kids are 19 and 16, so they're getting old and they're going to be flying the nest soon. And it's just been great spending time with them. And I made a conscious effort again that I'm coming out of this better for it. And I said, um, you know, first of all, my parents and I want everybody to be safe. I've had one of my friend's father pass away from it and I've had a couple of close pals die in between and it's been tough with the restrictions at funerals and whatnot, and it's not been an easy time. But I've basically, my nephew that I got to come and stay with me, he's a personal trainer, and um, I've been working out sort of four, four or five times a week and doing my daily exercise, cycling. So I've just been hitting balls into a net. It's actually been a, I never really get a time where I can have three months to do something. Um, you know, generally when I'm off, it's in the winter and there's no daylight and the weather's crap and, uh, it's freezing cold and you've got a lot on. But now I've been able to focus just on getting stronger and fitter so that when I come back, I'm, as I say, I'm getting a bit older and, you know, I've got to be fitter now. So, and you've, I'm just combat and age, basically. Uh, working hard, it means I can break my swing down and work on the bit because I'm hitting into a net, which is magic because that's the only way I think you can you can make significant swing changes because you're not really bothered about the ball. I don't care what anybody says. If you've not got a net and you're hitting the ball, you always react to what the ball is doing. Yeah. So having a net, it's almost like, yes, I can feel it's coming out the middle of the club, but I can implement a swing change. All I'm watching here is this change is what I'm wanting because I know under pressure or I know what my tendencies are that these kick in. So I'm trying to battle against that when, and I've made great strides in my swing. Uh, I've got a putting again. I'm just putting against a. I've, I'm using a training aid to putt with because I'm putting indoors or outdoors. But I've lost a stone in weight. Um, I've got I've got stronger. Um, so it's going to be less stress on my body, easier to travel. And and what I'm going to carry on is is I'm going to carry on the gym work when I go and play now. I've not. I, I've never had enough time where I could play in gym and not feel stiff. I had that conundrum of, I'll go to the gym, wait a minute, I'm stiff as a board here, I can't swing. But now I've been doing a stretching, I've been doing my gym work and I'm not getting stiff anymore, but I'm still getting stronger. I'm, I've changed my diet a bit, we're eating a lot fresher and healthier. So I'm going to come out of this better, 10 times better off. I've been reading, chance to read some books that I've, you know, that I, I don't really read. I read a cracking book there that's sort of, that helped me it's called The Slight Edge. I don't know if you've heard, if you've heard of it. By? And it's two seconds. It's by, it's by Jeff Olson. Okay. Oh, nice. And it's just about little things you can do, but you do it over a period of time. Don't try and go for quick fixes like diets or whatever. If you're going to do it, set yourself aside 10 minutes a day to read. Set yourself aside time managers set itself a bit better now having an imposed lockdown is brilliant for that because you can I can start to implement stuff and you'll know better than me that habits take certain times to change Yeah, you know 40 days or whatever 
Yeah. And I've been able to sort of change some habits. You know, I've been able to change the gym habits. I'm now, I'm now feel better about myself. I'm looking forward to getting back out whenever we do. I'm just making sure my family's safe, doing the right things. And I'm definitely, I'm using this as a sort of a springboard again for me to have a good finish to my end of my career and try and win a couple of times again. Love it. And have you heard of the book Atomic Habits? Nope. Yeah, that's something you might want to check out. Uh, the author is James Clear, and it's the same. Will you, will, you me, will you just send me a link for that? Yeah, well, after this, I'll send it to you. It's a yeah. book, but it's in the same vein as Slight Edge, it sounds like, and this idea of what he calls as 1% better every day. Yeah, same thing. And it's based on the, the kind of idea of the British uh, cycling team that went 100 yeah. for the medal. Well, right. in, in fairness, I, I used the cycling teams. Uh, in fact, what's it called? Atomic Habits. Because I used the cycling teams analogy as well when, when I went and wrote everything down because their, their motto was all, all, they, all they had was a bike and they yeah. just everybody had the same bike and it was basically how can we make this bike go faster than that bike and it's down to the small things and it's the same with golf that's what I used is it going to help me no well get rid of it is it going to help me yes well I'm going to look into it and try and figure out how I can get the best out of it and that's that's what I looked at nutrition psychology putting short game course yeah. management equipment you know when you, when you add it up there's 30 40 things and if you can do it if you can do most of them a little bit better, you're going to get better. But yeah. it's hard. You need the time. You need the time to do it. You need to. You have to make time. You have to sacrifice time, and that's what this sort of book. And I think having a having a sort of enforced sort of thing uh, lockdown for me has helped me. Sort of, you can time manage better. I can. I've now got everything structured a lot better than what I used to have because when you're when you're traveling all over. And trying to fit stuff in, it's tough. But now I feel a lot better that way, so I'll definitely look into that. And European Tour, is there any word on when the first tournament will? No. Yeah. Not yet. Americans are jumping on it, trying to get the first tournament going in June. Yeah, they're going in June. Yeah, I don't... I mean, we we just went into another three weeks lockdown from Scotland. I think England's going to be a little... They're relaxing it a little bit on Sunday, but we're just scared of this coming back, you know, the stage, yeah. stage two. So, you know what? As long as my family is safe in another three weeks or whatever, we're going to get back. We're definitely going to get out of it at some stage and you've just got to hope that we come out with as less people dying as we can. Yeah, exactly. And, and we're in lockdown. We could go back to Canada, but we're in lockdown. We were offered repatriation to Canada and we're like, no, we're staying right here in this compound. It's safe. You know, we're taken care of. we got a great place. We're okay here. Um, so to close off this show, Stephen, uh, where can people find you? I know they can just Google you, but just let people know where they can find you on social media and the website. I'm on Twitter at Stevie G Golf. I think that's Stevie G Golf. I actually don't even know. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'll have a look. And at Stevie G Golf, I think, yeah. And I'm on Instagram and that's it. Uh, at Stevie G Golf, yeah. Okay. Instagram and Twitter. And the foundation is just Stephen Gallagher Foundation. Foundation.com. Okay.
Okay, great, Stephen. Uh, and we're on Twitter and Twitter and uh, Instagram as well. Okay, are you going to play in Saudi again next year? Yeah, definitely. If okay. it's on, excellent. 100%. Yeah, I hope it's on for sure. Um, so I'm going to close off the show. I'm going to include all that in the show notes. And uh, don't forget, to, you know, when the podcast comes out, listen to Gary's message about you at the in the introduction. I will do. Okay, I will do. Winding me up, no doubt, but I will do. Okay, excellent. Um, so, Stephen, just hang on here. I'm just going to close off. Everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Stephen Galker, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Bye.